Art Life says, I'll take a mid-90s Yamaha 150 to 225 two-stroke. The extra mileage of the four-stroke doesn't make up for the insane cost of repairing the newer outboards. And all the downtime associated with being in the shop. Just like cars, they've sacrificed serviceability for technology. And the average Joe doesn't have a chance to fix it in the driveway. I do like the new four-stroke engines, but they're a rich man's game. And my opinion is that, yes, absolutely, I think you are true, Mr. Art Life, that the new outboards are a rich man's game just looking over some of the prices for things like uh, obviously as you get us to a smaller outboard they're going to be cheaper so like anything under like a 25 horse you're going to be in like the five thousand dollar range but then once you get up to 40 50 60 75 you're in the ten thousand dollar range and then once you get above that to like the 90 115 you're in the again probably in that ten thousand eleven thousand dollar range 150s are going to be about a $13,000 to $15,000 depending on if you get mechanical controls or digital electronic controls. Um, and that's going to go across pretty much every brand. So like Honda, Mercury, Yamaha, uh, Suzuki, all of those for 150 and down are going to be pretty close on the price range. Like, I mean, you could pretty much any of them, the 150s mechanically controlled are going to be like 13 grand. Then once you get going above that, they all stay pretty neck and neck except for Suzuki. Suzuki is usually a lot cheaper. And then we're talking about just buying engines now. Whenever you start adding the controls in there, that's when the prices really change. So let's say like on the other side of the spectrum, like, you know, you buy a Mercury V12 600, those engines are like $75,000 a piece, but that's just for the engine. That does not include your propellers and the rigging. Uh, that might include propellers. That might include the propellers in that price, but not 100%. The rigging, on the other hand, you need rig centers, you need um, the control boxes, all the all the um, helms, the steering helms and all that stuff, which are all electronic. So you're looking at like another 20 grand or so, depending on how many engines you have for the engine. I mean, you're talking about a $100,000 outboard. Now, they can use the power hydraulic steering systems, but at the same time, um, you're still going to be spending like ten to fifteen thousand dollars in rigging because you need the rig centers the gen 2 control boxes and all the wire harnesses that go along with it so once you start adding up your steering helm your steering pump all the hoses all the fluids and then all the other stuff yeah you're 10 15 maybe even 20 grand depending on how extensive the rigging that you put in the boat is and that's not to buy the engine so the v12 or I mean the V10 being the 350-400, those things are about 40 grand. They are probably going to cost you all in all about fifty to $60,000 for the outboard. Yamaha, same thing for the 425. You can find the 425s for like 32, 33, somewhere in there, but that doesn't include a lower unit. They don't ship them with lower units because, you know, it, does, you don't know what you're going to put the engine on. So different boats can have different lower units. I think you can get a 25, a 30, and a 35-inch shaft for the lower unit. I don't think you can get a 20. But again, you're now talking, you're taking 32, 33 grand and adding a $10,000 lower unit on there. So you're right back up to the 40, $42,000 for the engine. Um, 
they kind of have a different scope there. They're basically like Yamaha no longer has that mid range. As of right now, you can't get like a 350 or 400. When the XTO came out, they did have a 375, 400, 425, but now it's just the 450, 425. There are rumors of a 4.2 liter V6 350, but as of right now, you can't go to the dealership and buy something like that. So they kind of have a gap there between their 4.2 liter 300 and the V8 XTO 425 and 450. You kind of miss a whole 100 horsepower right there in that mid range, or well, that mid upper range, I guess you would call it now that there's a 600 on the market. But Either way, you're still not including that rigging, which again, depending on the controls being electronic controls and all that kind of stuff, you're about another 10 grand. So anywhere from 50 to $60,000 for that setup. So, you know, I would say, yeah, it's definitely going to be a rich man's game to buy new outboards and new products at the same time. Um, Suzuki does fulfill that mid range. They've got the 350. Honda now has a 350. The, Price on those are a little bit lower. I don't think that there is a public price for the Honda 350 yet. Um, I'm sure it's going to be up there in that same price range as the other ones. Being Mercury and Yamaha, they're in that $40,000 range, somewhere in there without the rigging. So my assumption would be that Honda is going to be right in there with it. The Yamaha or the Suzuki 350, let me look that up. Yeah, Suzuki 350, same thing. It's right in there with about $40,000. So, you know, they're all pretty much neck and neck. Then when you go down below that, pretty much everything below that from the 200 and up, like the 200 to the 300 range, all those outboards are anywhere from 20 grand to 30 grand, not including the rigging. So yeah, you are definitely going to be talking about spending some of that money if you're going to buy a new outboard. And I mean, yeah, the serviceability to them, I think has improved a lot. I do think that's a misconception because most of them to service them, they've made them super simple to service, especially the bigger ones. I mean, but again, it's a hundred thousand dollar outboard, same thing, V10, 425, all that, but they've made it to where you can service the engine in the water. So they have put a lot of thought into the service of the engine and being able to change, um, you know, just your regular thermostats, oil filters, and gear lube and stuff like that. They have made that service aspect a lot easier. Obviously, changing the impeller on any outboard, dropping the lower unit and going through it is, you know, kind of a pain for the DIY person, but it's not really that hard. You you wouldn't have a trouble doing it. I don't know if I would say that the serviceability of them is an issue. But the diagnostic and the um, troubleshooting and the repair of them has gone, you know, they're just like cars. Everything's electronic. There's anywhere from 10 to 30 sensors on the engine that all feed the computer and, and give you all these different controls and commands and diagnostic softwares and everything else that show you pretty much everything that's going on electronically with the engine that you could read with a sensor. As far as the diagnostic side of a thing and a new outboard, I would say yes, it has gotten way more complex to where no, you can't just sit in your driveway and you know start unplugging sensors to try and figure out what's wrong with the engine. You do need to do a lot more work 
I mean, not a lot more work, but a lot more investigation with software and stuff like that in order to be able to figure out what's going on with it. So if that's what you're saying as far as the serviceability and the you know troubleshooting aspect, I would say you're correct there um, with the new outboards. But then the smaller stuff, I mean, there's not a lot been changed with one fit, even the 200 and down. So a lot of the inline you know, Yamaha's inline four, 200 and down. Um, I think Suzuki has an inline four that goes to like 175 or something like that. And like the 200 and down, Mercury's kind of on the other side of it because they make a V6 200. So, you know, there is that difference there. But I would say anything lower than that, they're all pretty much the same simple engine, um, you know, mechanically controlled and just, you know, there's not as many electronically controlled aspects to the engine as there are with the bigger stuff. Yeah, there aren't any more carburetors or anything like that until you get down to the real small stuff, you know, five horse, 10 horse, 9.9, stuff like that. Those have carburetors on them, but everything else is EFI, electronic throttle bodies, electronic shift, all of that stuff, 200 and up. That is where it's going to get more complicated as far as the technical aspect and being able to diagnose it in your driveway. But the rest of it is still pretty simple. You know, a regular 150, you've still got the same, um, you know, doing drop tests and looking at stuff to figure stuff out as far as do you have an air leak? Do you have a blown up lower unit? Do you have a bad spark plug? Is your fuel injector clogged? Um, are you not making fuel pressure? Those kinds of things. It's all pretty much the same. And honestly, whenever it gets down to troubleshooting an engine, that's kind of always going to be like that. You know, I mean, as far as a combustion engine is concerned, spark, air, fuel. I mean, there's, it's, it's still that same basic concept the only difference today is that everything is electronically controlled through a computer and there are 30 sensors on the engine that feed the computer the information so that way it can control well it's basically trying to control the carbon footprint i guess you would say they're trying to be able to control fuel economy spark fuel delivery um, exhaust uh, and just all those kinds of things to try and fine tune the engine to make it as fuel efficient and um, carbon efficient as possible that you can with a combustion engine. But it is still the same deal with being a combustion engine with fuel injectors and spark plugs and stuff like that. So do you have spark? Do you have fuel pressure? Um, are you getting air to the engine? Are the spark plugs fouled? A lot of the same basic diagnostic things that you would do on any of the smaller stuff you still have to do on the bigger stuff it's just it's all bigger so maybe not as intimidating when you think about it like that as when you think about it as oh it's a four stroke with all these other stuff to it probably not as difficult as maybe trying to figure out some of the electric stuff that you got to work on now but that's just you know off the uh that's a different topic altogether Kevin McGuire's got said any suggestions on the type of string to use talking about restringing a T-top um, just one eighth inch nylon string and you know on a T-top like just a common rule of thumb if you're measuring the string and how much string you're going to need you basically just um, measure the width and the depth of the T-top and Add all those numbers together, times it by two, and that's how much string you need. So if you need, you know, 
five feet, five feet, seven feet, seven feet, you need 24 feet. If you get um, 50 feet out of that and then add 10 feet, that's pretty much how much string you're going to need. It's going to give you a lot of leftover, but at the same time, you can use that string elsewhere. It's, you know, cents, pennies to buy the string by the foot. So um, that's just a rule of thumb. And you'll probably reuse that string that you cut off whenever you go to attach the other stuff. Like if you do a T-top canvas, you're going to need to put VHF antennas, anchor lights, and stuff like that on top of the T-top. So now you've got a little extra string to use as a pull string down through the rigging tube into the console to run your wires and stuff. But that's just all the, the string that you're going to need. Eighth inch nylon. Axe beard, how often do I need to do this? And this is talking about how often you need to clean your outboard. Once you get an engine clean, depending on how dirty it is, what is the environment you run in? What's the engine look like? Um, you know, maintaining something's cleanliness is pretty simple once you get it clean, and depending on how dirty it gets. But I think once you get an engine clean and you put corrosion protection on it like a CRC 565 or something like that or 656 whatever it is once you get it you know to that point and have corrosion protection on it you should just be able to maintain that every time you service the engine just spray a little CRC on there and that will help maintain the cleanliness so you shouldn't have to be cleaning your engine that often unless you've got a gasket leak or something or you've got a water leak somewhere that springs you know, water inside the engine cowling that's getting it to be dirty. Otherwise, you shouldn't have to clean it that often. I mean, once you get it clean, get it corrosion protected, and then not worry about it. Catherine Romeo, I've been subscribed and watching your videos for a while. They are great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, previously asked you a question. I've got a two, 2016 Mercury 225 V6. I know this is an older video, but I've been trying to research... How to empty the FSM tank on Mercury's for winter storage. I used to be able to empty my Suzuki with a bleeder. Is there any way to empty the FSM on Mercs? Thanks for all the help and answering questions. Great job on podcast too. Thank you. So what you want to do is either one, use a fuel stabilizer to stabilize the fuel. And then when you flush and fog the engine, you'll run that through there. But something else that you could do is go to the airport and get Avgas. Avgas is got a shelf life of like two years or something. So if you run the engine on the Avgas and then get the FSM and the fuel rail and everything full with that Avgas, you're not going to have a problem um, putting it into winter storage and not being able to drain the FSM with the fuel. But again, you're going to want to treat the fuel that's in the boat. But for to answer your question, no, you can't empty those FSMs unless you take it off the engine and then um, open it up and dump it out. But the old ones used to have like a drain on there, but I would never suggest taking that drain screw out because it just led to problems. Adam McGeorge, how long do you have to flush? I'm on tank water, so 5 to 10 seconds is about all I give it. 60 horsepower four-stroke Yamaha gets used three times a week. Honestly, Adam, I would say it's a little rough being on tank water because you got a limited supply of water. But if you could get that up to like 30 seconds, I think 30 seconds is going to be enough to flush the engine out and, um, you know, do what you're trying to do with the flushing of the engine, getting the cool system all cleaned out and the internals of the engine, impeller, all that, get all the dirt and salt and all the other stuff out of there with the fresh water. 
five to 10 seconds isn't a lot of time. I do, under, you know, it is difficult when, yeah, you're on a tank, you got limited supply. So that's a, a huge factor because obviously you don't want to drain your tank just to flush the outboard. So maybe even, um, honestly, something else, just a thought that if you trailer the boat, which being a 60 horsepower, probably smaller, you probably trailer the boat. If you trailer it, wherever your ramp is, a lot of times parks and other stuff have water somewhere around there, whether it be, um, you know, some kind of water somewhere. So maybe if you had a hose and you could find a water spigot there where you take the boat out at the ramp, maybe even be able to flush it out there at the ramp before you even get it back to the house. So not even having to worry about your tank supply unless you store it, you know, where you don't have that ability. That's just an, a thought to think about that. Maybe you can get a way to cheat that and, and let it, you know, flush for like five minutes. But other than that, if you could get up to 30 seconds on the tank, then that's going to be better. Five to 10 is, isn't a lot of time. So W Stan Sutton, I have a 2007 Grady Fisherman 222 with a 250 Yamaha. Would I, would a bracket be something to consider pros and cons of a bracket on the green board transom, a green board transom. I don't know what that really is. I mean, Green board, like green boards, like what I think of when you're talking about green board for drywall in a bathroom or something like that. Maybe, okay, I bet you mean green wood, like pressure treated marine plywood. That's what you're talking about. So you got a wood transom um, on the bracket. On the on the Grady Fisher Fisherman 222, um, that's going to be the center console model, and the transom's going to be cut out. So you're trying to get space in the boat. So you're adding, um, you know, a bracket to get the engine back and get you that space on that model of a boat. I see a lot of the Grady, um, fishermen, like the 225, I want to say, or like the ones that's got the cutty and stuff like that. All those hundred percent, they get a bracket, but on this one, I don't really, I've never, I might've seen like one or two of the 222s with a bracket because of the way the back of that boat is, is it, it's got a splash well, but it's got like two things that come out from the transom where you've got like, um, I think one side's a live well and the other side is just like a storage thing. And then it goes down, but inside there where the engine goes up, there's just like a little flap that kind of goes there. And there's a splash well with two pie hole covers and the engine mounts back to the transom. So you don't really gain anything by putting a bracket on there. And because it's the center console model opposed to like the 225 or any of the cutty cabin versions where there's more weight forward to the boat, you don't have a lot of weight in the front of that boat. So if you go and stick the engine back farther in the boat, um, you could change the ride of the boat and have problems with the boat and the way it performs in the water because it's, it doesn't have the weight in the front and now you've put the engine back, you know, two feet or so from the back of the boat and you didn't really gain anything. So, I mean, you might be able to gain a little bit of performance based on when you're talking about brackets and, um, porta brackets and jag plates and all this other stuff, you're getting the engine to have a farther setback so you can mount it higher so you can hopefully improve the ride of the boat by getting the engine higher out of the water more gaining a little bit of top speed 
but I don't know if you're really going to get that out of the 222. So honestly, I I probably wouldn't go with the bracket just because of the way the transom is. There's not really, um, you know, older but other other boats like you know contenders and makos and all these other brands where there's a difference in the way the transom is so whenever you close it off and open it up you gain a lot of space even a wellcraft the old wellcrafts a lot of those didn't have those lockers in the back that came out so far as it does in the 222 so i would probably say that you're not really going to gain that much by doing that so i probably wouldn't do that just because it's hard to say how the boat's going to perform there are some boats that when you put a bracket on them, they start porpoising real bad and you actually diminish the ride of the boat because it's it just it's smaller. You're getting to that range where once you get under like 22, 21 and you start putting brackets and stuff, it completely changes the dynamics of the boat and its fulcrum points and how it's going to perform in the water. So I don't know if I would be leaning towards putting a bracket on that boat. Um, Alex, I worked at a marina for six months, and when the winter time came, they said they couldn't keep me because they made very little sales this year. I got certified in the meantime by Yamaha at the company. I am really devastated they didn't keep me. I really love that job. That is unfortunate, and that's kind of the downside of working in the marine industry in the northern states where you do have seasonalities, you have winters. Um, I've, I, I don't really have much experience with any of that i never was a mechanic in the snow so i don't know too much about it but i have heard a lot of stories of people that would do like they would get unemployment or have some other seasonal work that they did during the winter time um, to supplement that so maybe the company would need you back in the springtime summertime that would be phenomenal to get back into the industry and doing that outside of having to move somewhere um, like Florida that has all year round boating for the most part, but that is a downside. Sorry to hear that. Um, you know, let me know how the unemployment thing, cause that's what a lot of people that I hear do is that they'll work all the way until, you know, October, November. And then when everything freezes, obviously there's no work to, you can't work on a boat cause there's nothing to do. So they will go on unemployment. And then in the springtime, they will go off of unemployment and then go right back to working at the marina or whatever. So maybe that would work for your situation and the company that you were working with. Um, Matthew Sharp, is it bad to flush with salt away every flush? I would say no. I would say that if you're willing to and you want to pay for the salt away and, and run it every flush, the inside of that engine is going to be squeaky clean. You can have no issues. Um, I wouldn't say that there's going to be a downside to that outside of the expense that you got to buy the salt away and flush it every time with that. But you're definitely going to, the end, you're, you shouldn't have any cooling system problems as far as like clogs or anything like that when you do something like that. Outside of if you pick up, you know, some coral, seaweed, um, grass, anything like that, that's always a possibility regardless of how often you flush your engine and how clean it is on the inside. You can always get shallow. If you get in some skinny water and um, pick up some, some debris, dirt, sand, um, grass, whatever it may be, and you can get that stuff worked up into your cooling system and clog stuff. So that's always a um, downside to it. But Saltaway's not going to fix that. But I wouldn't say, no, there's no downside to flushing 
the engine every time with Saltaway. Mark Wiebner on the flushing topic. I have a set of 19, 2019 150 Mercury four strokes that were used to repower our boat. Last year I did the thermostats. I took one of the old thermostats to school. I'm a science teacher. Sweet. Uh, the old thermostat had some blow-by when run under cold water from a sink. I wonder if this happens when on the flushing port. If so, the whole motor would be flushed. To be fair, I did not test the brand new thermostats that I installed. Any ideas regarding how tight the new Mercury thermostats actually close? Total hours were around 220. The thermostats looked almost new with a little stain from the water. Also, it was over 300 bucks for two thermostats. Really, Merck? Um, yeah, that's the unfortunate side of that is that Mercury, I mean, the golden thermostats are 150 bucks a pop. They come with the housings. You can't just buy just the regular thermostats, and you got to buy the clamp that goes on it. I mean, you know, $150 thermostat, like... Really? That's that's pretty steep. I mean, for a thermostat, I feel your pain on that one. I do like the idea of this, too, that, you know, if there is a little bit of blow-by, I wonder, you know, technically, I don't think that there should be any um, blow-by, but if there is, based on the water pressure, then, yeah, if you were to flush the engine, I mean, that would just disregard the whole flushing topic altogether because if based on the water pressure, the thermostat would allow a little bit of water through it, which there might be. I mean, I don't know. I've never really tried to test a thermostat, um, a brand new thermostat based on something like that. But um, I do know there are people that use that would drill their thermostats. Same thing. A lot of bass guys or people that are running in skinny waters, sometimes that they would do stuff like that where they would drill a hole in the thermostat in order to allow a little bit of water to flow by it to keep um, a certain regulated temperature based on how they were running the boat. Um, but I do not know if there is any specific amount of water. I think they're supposed to close all the way and there shouldn't be any going by it, but that is interesting. And I do want to try that with a brand new thermostat to see if there is any, because if there is, then yeah, you're right. You'd be flushing the whole other side of the thermostat without having to run the engine, um, to heat up, to open that thermostat, to get the other side of the thermostat flushed on the engine. Manuel Fuertes, can you start the motor on the flush attachment? Um, that is like a super controversial subject right there. There's so many people that are on this side and so many people on this side of running the engine on the, th on the flush hose. Any manufacturer, any big company, any owner's manual, any of that stuff, those companies and those kinds of people that work for the brand and they're you know, ambassadors for a brand are gonna tell you no that you cannot run it on that. And the idea is that, yeah, you're going to burn up your impeller. But depending on what you're doing, um, working in marinas for over 10 years, I've seen hundreds of people doing it and tons of mechanics that that's what they do. So when you're diagnosing problems, you would do something like that. You hook it to the flush attachment and run the engine at idle for a couple of minutes so that you could run a test, get fuel pressure, do a drop test, miscellaneous stuff like that. At, at idle, an engine going 600 RPM, the water, the impeller does not have enough pressure to blow the water off the impeller. Look down on it. It's going to have water coming out the intakes. You're cooling the impeller. But at the same time, if you rev the engine up, 
you're going to, you're going to melt the impeller, you're going to burn it up, or you're going to wear it out because it's going to get hot. And then two, if you run it for 10, 15, 20 minutes on the flushboard, same thing. You're not, it's not the right amount of cooling water. Are you really harming anything? If you run it for, you know, a couple minutes, highly unlikely until you get to the bigger outboards, a 600, a V10, um, 425, like these bigger blocks, different subject. But like for a 150, if you start running that engine on the flush attachment, you're not going to hurt anything. But again, it's only for testing purposes. It's not for like, you shouldn't hook your engine up to the flush port and start it and run it every time just to flush out the engine. That's just unnecessary. So it's kind of, kind of a topic that People over here, people over here, they're going to fight about it and debate it on both sides of it. Both have valid arguments. So, you know, you you be you decide on whether or not you want to do that with your engine or not. I would say that based on those circumstances, if you're doing it in a conscious way, you're not going to do any harm. Pierce. Petrilli, great subject. I'm kind of on the same predicament as I'm trying to decide whether to up, update existing and going over the rated horsepower or sell and upgrade to a 27 or 30 foot. I've got a 1990 Mako 221 DV with a brand new single 200 Yamaha on it with 57 hours. We are the original owners with the tank already upgraded back in the late 90s, enough to make runs to Bimney and back. But I live on the golf side now and this single engine thing is making me uncomfortable when thinking of making these shelf runs. I was thinking of seating the trans sealing the transom off completely. It's had some closure done by Bass Pro, but not the best work in my opinion. And getting a, an Armstrong bracket made for two 115s or maybe 150s. Boats rated for 240 according to the plate. So do I risk it and upgrade to upgrade it or sell and shoot for 27 or 30 with twins already on them? All right. So in my opinion, Pierce, I would say this kind of goes back to the guy talking about the Grady White, the 222. You're I got a 21 or the, you know, 22. So I had a 1985 21 Mako and I've got a lot of experience on a 1992 23 Mako and then also another 20 foot Mako, actually quite a few Makos. I've had, I've been on a lot of Makos and a lot of them have the brackets that boat right there. So take my 85 21. I closed the transom on it. I had a, an Evinrude. 250 Ocean Pro, I had a platform bracket. That boat would run in the 40s, and if I trimmed the engine a certain way or I ran in a certain chop, the boat was on the borderline of becoming porpoisey. So Makos are heavy boats, which, which make them ride really, really good. And whenever you do that, you close off the transom, you got weight, you add the brackets, you got weight. So if you're talking about adding twins on the back of the 22, um, you are probably going to change the way that boat rides and it will probably be very porpoisey and it may not perform the way you would want it to perform because on the 23 that we did, same thing, close the transom. Well, that one already had the transom closed because the live well was in the back um, up on top. It's the one with the, the 23 with the closed transom. 
platform bracket, and that one had a 300 Verado. 300 Verado is like 700 pounds. So with that one, it was porpoisey. If you tried to trim up much on that boat, it got extremely porpoisey. And again, because of the weight factor. So for your 90, if you add twins, like 115s or 150s, the 150s are like 450 pounds pushing 500, and the 115s are like 400 pounds. So you're talking about adding 400 to like 800 to say almost 1,000 pounds on the back of the boat, not including the bracket. So you are adding a lot of weight to the back of that boat. And I do not, again, back to the setback and the weight and the fulcrum point, once you get below that 22, 21, you know, that 23, in that range, that length of a boat, the fulcrum point in the middle of the boat and the way the boat rides, you know, based on being back heavy or bow heavy or any of that stuff, you're definitely, I don't think that the boat would perform. I think it's going to, I think that that is too much weight to put on the back of that boat. And you're probably going to have a negative impact on the way it rides. I probably would not do that simply for that fact. It's the boat is short enough and that's too much weight to stick on the back. It's a lot of work to try it. I don't, know of anybody that has that you know 22 mako with twins on the back of it to close the transom to buy the bracket and then to put the twins on there you're going to spend a lot of money like that's a lot of work and that's a lot of money to have a 50 50 shot on whether the boat's going to perform and based on my experience with the makos being the 21s the 23s um in all being singles with platform brackets and their borderline porpoisey very borderline on my 21. If it was me alone and not much gear in the boat, it was, it was like right there on, you know, like in a certain chop, I would get a porpoise effect and, you know, I would have to trim the engine down, dig it in order to get rid of that. And then I was plowing, burning more fuel. Now, if you're running trim tabs, same thing. You could put trim tabs on it to get rid of that problem, but now you're going to burn more fuel and you you know, now you're plowing more. You say you're going to lose speed. I probably would not do that as far as changing that. I would probably sell it. Would you say you had on there the single, you got an inline four for one, an inline four Yamaha 200, which is a little light. You know, the ones that I, I mean, I had the 250 and the other one had a 300, but we put a PCM on that one to, I think it was like a 340. So, um, both of those were overpowered rain in the forties. I'm not sure. You're probably running with that single 200. You're probably running in the 30s, maybe peaking on the 40. I don't know if you're breaking 40 miles an hour top end or not. But, um, yeah, I I think that I would sell it because it's a great boat. I mean, that setup right there, they the ride is phenomenal, and you've already got the fuel tank done. The transom's, you know, I guess done. Maybe there might be something wrong there. I don't know what, you know. You got going on with the whole closure Bass Pro deal. I don't know anything about that, but the hull itself, having the fuel tank done and having 57 hours on a on an inline 200, like that's a that's going to be a great boat. Like for someone else that that isn't trying to do what you're trying to do. Um, at the same time, you could also buy Cito and just run it the way it is, but. I get the, um, you know, the, the long shelf runs, you're trying to go out way out 
and and fish far in the Gulf. So there is a different aspect of running 50, 60, 70 miles offshore with a single engine boat. Um, I do feel you there. I would probably sell it. Someone's going to be super happy with the boat the way it is now, and you don't have to risk spending thousands of dollars to, you know, have a boat that's going to porpoise through the water and you're going to have to run a lot slower, burn a lot more fuel and have all these other things just, you know, just to keep running that the way it is. I think if you, if it's in the possibility to sell it and upgrade to the 27 and 30, you're going to be way more happy with a 27 or a 30 based on how far you're trying to go out and the kind of fishing that you're trying to do. Um, you're just going to have a lot more of an enjoyable experience with that kind of a boat. And we've got a couple more here, but I think what I'm going to do is shut this one down for now. We'll cover these on the next episode. If anything you want to be talking about, drop in the comments below. Email us at askbaba.bornagainboating.com. Um, check out our boaters program at bornagainboating.com, and we will see you next week.